At the heart of this little section of the heart of 1 Kings 18 for today, especially, we see a battle of the gods. The God who made the world versus the gods the world has made. On the one side, the so-called God Baal, who's captured the hearts of the northern kingdom of Israel at this time. And on the other side, the real God, the Lord Yahweh, the God whom his people has forgotten, have turned their backs on. And right the way through the Bible, we get this dynamic, constant back and forth. The people have turned away from God, and then he, they return because he, he woos them back to him. He recaptures their hearts afresh, and then they turn away again, and, and again, woos back. And it's easy, I find, to wag the finger and to tut at them. But as we begin, I want you to do something that I've done this week, and try and get inside the head and the heart of a Baal worshipper. Why is this false god at this time so attractive, so alluring? Why have the people pretty much wholesale gone after him, had their hearts turned? What does he offer? And I hope then that will give us a level of awareness, self-awareness and honesty as we look at our own hearts and we feel some of those pressures ourselves. Baal is probably not our issue. But I wonder if other so-called gods will be. So as we begin, let's try and have a, a time of analysis. Why is Baal so attractive? Three brief thoughts for us as we begin. One is it, power. That is Jezebel, Ahab the king's wife, is a fervent and keen Baal evangelist, a terrorist perhaps. And weak-willed Ahab is not prepared to say no. And it's often the case around the world and down the pages of history that for good or ill, people or nations are influenced by power, by self-preservation. So Mr. Israelite, Mrs. Israelite, are you ambitious? Well, if you want to get anywhere in the kingdom, if you want to move your way up the ranks or even just provide more for your your family, don't be stupid. Don't stand against Jezebel and Ahab. Don't stand against the powerful elite. Do you want to keep your head, literally? Then bow. Bow the knee to Baal. Baalism is the the religion of the majority, the religion of power. In our day, imagine more, more than it is now, and I reckon it's getting there, but imagine being a Christian in society makes you unpopular, makes it hard for you to be ambitious, makes it difficult for you to get on in your job. But if you will give up on that God and worship this God, then maybe you'll get somewhere. You'll start to move your way up the ladder. Do you you feel the the dynamic? Isn't it tempting to worship the, the God who is in power, so to speak? For some of us, that might already be the case that we feel that pinch. You're known as a Christian and people think of you as a bit naive, a bit gullible, a bit backwards. And so it's harder for you to get on, to be taken seriously. So I wonder if it's about power. Secondly, I wonder if it's about history. In that Baalism would be prehistoric to some extent. It's not a newfangled thing, and that's always attractive for some. It's not the next new idea, the next new religion that someone's dreamt up. It's not a recent fad that people have been duped by or susceptible to. Baal worship had stood the test of time. It was there in the land before they arrived. It would be hundreds of years old. 
Again, there can be those pressures in our day, can't there? People like to justify that what they are doing and how they are worshipping is tried and trusted. You can track it back through history. This isn't something we've dreamt up. My faith is ancient, people say. Stand in the line of centuries, millennia even, of faithful worshippers. And for some, that makes it a legitimate thing. There may be truth in that, but of course, just because it's old doesn't mean it's right. So there's power, there's prehistory, and thirdly, it was a profoundly practical religion. This is not a load of philosophical platitudes. It was about real things, as far as we can tell. It was about fertility and food, and weather and water, and cattle and crops. In a largely agrarian culture, it was the stuff of the everyday. It was a religion that scratched your itches. It was concrete. It made a difference to you on Monday morning. Again, it doesn't take much to feel the pull of that for us. In fact, if you switch on to certain TV channels or to certain radio stations or read certain books in much of our so-called contemporary Christianity, you will hear some of those messages now. Do you want to do well in your exams? Do you want to be fruitful in life? Do you want to live your best life now? Do you want more money? Do you want a bigger car, a bigger house, a bigger plane? Do you want success? See, maybe these Baal worshippers weren't far from us in our context. But the problem we'll see today, of course, is that Baal is not real. He can make promises, but he can't deliver on them. And however attractive we might find Baal, for good or bad reasons, we'll see it doesn't work. Now, it's a long chapter. Thank you very much, John for reading the whole thing. Um, we're going to very quickly skirt over 1 to 15. I'm just going to give you three little things to note in the narrative. Then we're going to spend most of our time in 16 to 46. And we'll see in the account how deliberately the odds are stacked against Elijah. So the people watching can have no doubt to who the real God is. And then we'll finish... I think by seeing how this whole episode is an extraordinary pointer to another mountain, to another sacrifice, another victory, we'll see how this points to the Lord Jesus. So firstly and quickly, 1 to 15, just three little things that I want to pull out from those verses. I want to say, firstly, it is still drought time. There has still been no rain. It is still parched. People are getting desperate. So verse 5 Ahab had said to Obadiah, go through the land to all the springs and valleys. Maybe we can find some grass to keep the horses and mules alive so we won't have to kill any of our animals. The horses and the mules probably mattered to Ahab because they were military animals. Do you remember from last time? He's a successful military leader. So I think it's telling that his power trumps his people. He cares more about being strong in military terms. But it is still a time of drought. It's still a time of drought because God has not allowed it to rain because the nation is still compromised in its worship. So look at verse 4. We see Jezebel has been killing off the Lord's prophets, murdering prophets. And then verse 19 on the second panel there, Jezebel even personally provides for Asherah prophets. So in the time of the drought and the hardship, who is she prioritizing those who are leading her husband away from the Lord. 
But it's strange, what's Ahab doing through all this? He's not repenting, he's not returning, he's not worshipped the Lord. It turns out Ahab has been frantically searching for Elijah. So do you remember last time Elijah, three years ago, says there's going to be a drought and then he disappears. He goes to the Kerith Ravine, we saw that in verse 1 to 7 of chapter 17. He's miraculously fed by ravens. Then he goes to Zarephath, as we were learning with, with Woody and the children. And he miraculously provides for this widow. And then he's been camped in Zarephath for, I guess, three years. But Ahab has had a price on Elijah's head. So the search parties have gone out. The dogs have been sent out to try and track down the troublemaker. And verse 10, we see the conversation with Obadiah. As surely as the Lord your God lives... There is not a nation or kingdom where my master has not sent someone to look for you. And whenever a nation or kingdom claimed you were not there, he made them swear they couldn't find you. So why has Ahab not turned back to the Lord? It seems weird. Well, I think it's extraordinary, but it seems in, in Ahab's mind, Elijah is the problem. So he describes him as a troublemaker. He sees Elijah as the reason that it has not rained. So rather than repenting and returning, turning his back on Baal and serving the Lord, he's trying to find Elijah because he thinks it's his fault. He's still unfaithful. But there's a bit of good news for our third little snapshot in 1 to 15, and that is there are some faithful people. So we meet Obadiah. His name means the Lord's servant. He's he's worshipped the Lord since being a youth, verse 12. He's... He's a privileged, powerful man, verse 3, a palace administrator. He's brave, verse 4, because, more good news, he's hidden and housed a hundred prophets. Two caves of fifty, he's given them provisions and water. So there are faithful worshippers. It looks bleak, but there are a few who are clinging on and trusting the Lord, lying low, keeping their heads down. So that's something of the context. Okay, it's still a drought, because it's still a nation not worshipping the Lord. But then there are a few faithful prophets, which sets us up for the rest of chapter 18, the contest of Carmel. And remember here, we are considering outwardly how, how it seems the whole event is stacked against the Lord. It looks, it looks hopeless. Where do we see that? We see it firstly because Elijah is in enemy territory. So Elijah initially sets up the meeting with Ahab, verse 16 to 20. And then, 21 to 24, he challenges the people. And he says this, Elijah went before the people and said, How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. But the people said nothing. Then Elijah said to them, I am the only one of the Lord's prophets left. But Baal has 450 prophets. Get two bulls for us. Let Baal's prophets choose one for themselves and let them cut it into pieces and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. I will prepare the other bull and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. Then you will call the name of your God. I'll call the name of the Lord, the God who answers by fire, where he's the God. And the people say, well, what you say is good. So he makes it public. Ahab has summoned them all, has requested, but Elijah explains what's going on. This This is a boxing match, but it is not behind closed doors. It's on TV. Everyone can see it. Everyone knows the stakes. Everyone gets to decide whom they will follow. And so when it rains, they know who has sent the rain. And picking fire, 
Guess that's lightning again. That is Baal territory. He allegedly controlled the weather, although perhaps after three years of drought, you're beginning to doubt. They're wobbling in their trust. And and why Mount Carmel? Well, ancient records show it was a a sacred pagan mountain. 2,000 years BC, the Egyptians called it the Holy Head. From about 841 BC, the Assyrians called it the Mountain of Baal. So again, rather like Zarephath last week, this is Baal territory deliberately. It's a whole lot more public. Baal has the home advantage. Indeed, verse 30, well, the altar to the Lord had been destroyed. I think in picking Carmel, the Lord Elijah is wanting to show the deficiency of Baal and the sufficiency, the supremacy of the Lord. Again, geography is not an issue for our gods. He is the Lord everywhere. He is the Lord of Jerusalem or Zarephath or Mount Carmel. There are no bits or areas that he can't cope with or be in charge of. On the big scale, that is relevant because when we pray for the world, well, he is Lord of the world, every last bit of it. It's relevant on the small scale because where you spend your week, well, he is there, your your workplace, the office, the school gates, your commute, your house, your classroom. He is the Lord everywhere. Everywhere. There is not a place where he is not the Lord, even Mount Carmel. So he's in enemy territory. Secondly, he's outnumbered. Verse 19, Now summon the people from all over Israel to meet me on Mount Carmel and bring the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah, who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent word throughout all Israel and assembled the prophets on Mount Carmel. Now, my mass isn't great, but it looks like in overall terms on the mountain, there are 850 prophets on one side and then one on the other. And it seems the Asherah prophets are just watching. Maybe they don't turn up. We don't know. But only the Baal prophets are active. Then verse 22, Elijah said, I am the only one of the Lord's prophets left. Now, Perhaps that's active prophets, because we know there's at least 100 in caves hiding. But Baal has 450 prophets. Get two bulls for us. Let Baal's prophets choose one for themselves and let them cut it into pieces. Put it on the wood, but don't set fire. Popularity does not represent reality. You see, the majority is not always right. That is a really important thing for us to grip onto. Barely a week goes by when there's not another study showing how numbers in churches are falling. Of course, it doesn't really mean anything. It just hurts us because we like to be in the majority of the ascendancy. We, We like not to stick out. And when the tide goes out and numbers on pews reduces and Christian, being a Christian becomes less and less culturally, socially acceptable, we, we begin to think, well, maybe they're right. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe numbers do matter. I don't like to be in a minority. But of course, we're not seeing with the eyes of faith. With, with God on your side, we are never in a minority. But it seems at this point, Elijah, completely outnumbered. The third one, if I can put it like this, is that Elijah is calm 
One of our children's Bibles at home has, has a brilliant picture of this bit. It's the frantic fervency of Baal's prophets, 450 of them, red faces stomping about the place, bulging eyes, shouting. And then verse 26, they take the bull, they prepare it, and they call out on the name of the Lord from morning till noon, Baal, answer us, they shouted. But there was no response. No one answers. And they danced around the altar they had made. At noon, Elijah began to taunt them. Shout louder, he said. Surely he's a god. Perhaps he is he's deep in thought. Perhaps he's busy or, or traveling. Maybe he's sleeping and must be awakened. So they shouted louder and slashed themselves with swords and spears, and as was their custom, until the blood flowed. Midday passed, they continued their frantic prophesying until the time came for the evening sacrifice, but there was no response. No one paid attention. No one answered. Do you see their worship? They are very keen. They are wholehearted and devoted and enthusiastic. It is, it is costly. It is sacrificial. They're at it for half a day. They spill blood even. But you notice they're seeking to manipulate their God to do their will. This is man-centered worship that seeks to press the buttons to make our God give us what we want. And the final result, nothing. Nothing. Baal, the God of fertility and weather and fire and lightning doesn't turn up. Verse 26, no response, no one answered. Verse 29, no response, no one answered, no one paid attention. And again, and I say this, I say this carefully and humbly, but I think it's of huge relevance to people like us today. We live in a multicultural, pluralistic, tolerant society, which I take it as a good thing. People largely still have freedom to think and to speak and to act and to worship within reason. But we need to be clear on this. It is okay to disagree with people. In fact, it is, it is vital that we disagree with people. Because we see here, in amusing, cheeky terms, the fervency of belief that finally means nothing. It gets you nowhere. They picture the scene, I can sprint in town for all I'm worth. I can barge through people, duck in and out, pushing past them, and leap on and pay my leap on a bus and pay my money and sit down and try and stop sweating. But you know, if I'm on the wrong bus, if it's the four to Wood Farm and I find myself up St. Clements and then Moral Avenue rather than the three to Littlemore and I'm on the Iffley Road, if it's the wrong bus, if it's the wrong God. However much I sprinted and ran and sweated, however fervent I was, I was wrong. And we might be unpopular for saying that. Because in our culture, fervency matters. Being true to yourself matters. But at times, I take it, we must say that people are wrong. In fact, Elijah mocks them. 
in their worship of Baal. Baal is seen to be nothing. He promised so much, they believed him, but he couldn't deliver. And Elijah mocks them. Maybe, maybe we need at times appropriately to call out people's false gods more often, to show them for what they really are. Elijah did it, Isaiah does it. I don't know. But Elijah is calm. And fourthly, we see the odds are stacked against him. Do you see, at this point in the account, just because Baal is seen to have failed, just because this Baal who promised him so much hasn't shown up, it doesn't mean that the Lord is the Lord. Not yet. And in contrast to the fervency and the time spent and the numbers involved in 30 to 39, God simply answers the prayers of Elijah. What happens? Well, Elijah repairs the altar in verse 30. It was probably one of the altars used before the temple was built in Jerusalem. And then verse 31, this is important. He he lays 12 stones to symbolize the 12 tribes of the people. I think that's to emphasize the fact that this bull that's going to be offered is to be offered for the people. It's not just a magic trick or a competition. This is, this is a genuine sacrifice happening. It's, it does something. It achieves something for his people. He, he builds the pyre and then to make it even more unlikely, he pours water on, vast amounts of water on. I guess to show it, this is legit, this is real. It's not a magic trick. It's not something clever he's done. And then verse 36. At the time of the sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed, Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, Lord, answer me, so these people will know that you, Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones and the soil, and also licked up the water in the trench. When all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Do you see what's Elijah's concern for? for the honour and glory of God. That the people might again see who he is. He, he, verse 36, he's the God of covenant, of relationship, of Abraham, Isaac and Israel, Jacob. Or verse 37, he's the God of his people who can turn people's hearts back to him. And it's, it's immediate. The prophets of Baal have been at it all day. And instantaneously from the cloudless sky comes fire. Showing everyone that the Lord accepts their sacrifice. Similar parallels to when the original tabernacle was built. It's a sacrifice. The fire of the Lord falls on the bull, not his people. And if the chapter ended there, it would be great. But it doesn't, and it's messy, and we've got questions. It ends with, initially, the prophets of Baal being killed, slaughtered. And we don't so much like that bit. 
We struggle. It sounds barbaric, but I take it false prophets are dangerous. They, they take people away from the God of life. They lead them to their death. It's not just their nice ideas. It's not just their take on things. It's death. It's a glimpse, a picture, a taster of the judgment to come when all who have not worshipped the Lord will not be in his presence. And we might not like it, but Jesus speaks very plainly and very often about hell. So picture two now, I think of false teachers are to be warned and removed from churches, removed from the people of God when church discipline must happen. Because they lead people astray, they lead them away from the God of life. So it's messy because we've got questions about judgment and then the account ends, 41 to 46. The people return to the Lord, judgment is removed, the blessings of the covenant pour down again. It's rain, harvest, crops, life. The fire of the Lord converts their hearts, the water from the Lord strengthens their bodies. But then another question, Elijah prays. Why does it take seven times? Why isn't it instantaneous like the fire? Has he just got this fire thing going on, but he's not so good with water? What is it? Maybe it's just that God is God. And Elijah needs to know that and to remember that. Maybe we need to learn to live with the mystery of that. And then he sprints back to Jezreel. Verse 46, ahead of Ahab. What's going on there? Maybe maybe a prophetic action. A picture again of how it ought to be. The king, the king looking to the prophet. The word of the Lord before the ruler of the Lord. It doesn't last long. And so you see at Mount Carmel... You see this extraordinary battle in 1 Kings 18. We see the real gods who made the world versus Baal, a made-up God. And we see the real God who made the world looking weak and unlikely and outnumbered, but it's there that we see that we see the true God of power. As the sacrifice is offered, as the Lord triumphs over Baal and his prophets and shows them to be false, as his judgment is removed from his people, as blessing is restored and poured down on his people, as hearts are turned back to the Lord. So you see Mount Carmel anticipating another mountain, getting us ready for a bigger mountain, a a bigger sacrifice, a bigger victory. Because on the Mount of Crucifixion, as Jesus dies, it looks pretty unlikely. It looks pretty weak. He looks utterly alone. It's not just 850 prophets against one. It is the whole world against one. And he is the sacrifice for his people. Paul says in Colossians 3, He says, it's like on Carmel, but it is so much more. 
Colossians 3, he disarms the powers and authorities, making a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. But you see, they are shamed. Jesus is seen to be victorious. The Lord is Lord. His acceptable offering of himself takes away our curse of judgments, not just for a time, not just for the people here, but for his people once and for all and forever. His enemies defeated forever. And in a sense, after Easter Sunday, it begins to rain. The promise of blessing poured out on his people. Life, forgiveness, even his spirits poured out on his people, into his people, turning hearts back to himself, hearts of stone to hearts of flesh. Hearts that are moldable, hearts that can be transformed. Hearts that bit by bit by bit by bit by bit don't run after the bars of this world, the false gods of this age. Hearts that are loyal to him and hearts that worship him. As we're about to sing, on the Mount of Crucifixion, fountains open deep and wide, through the floodgates of God's mercy flowed a vast and gracious tide. Grace and love like mighty rivers poured incessant from above. And heaven's peace and perfect justice kissed a guilty world in love. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank and praise you for the Lord Jesus. We thank you for that mount of crucifixion where all the odds seemed to be stacked against him. And yet it was there that he took our judgment upon himself. It was there that the blessings flowed down upon his people as he died and is raised again. Thank you for the way in which this episode with Elijah and Mount Carmel points us to him points us to that bigger mountain, that bigger sacrifice, the bigger victory. Father, we pray as those who know and love you with soft hearts of flesh, we pray that you would help us to not follow whatever Baal might look like for us in our situation, in our context. As we've sung already, we acknowledge our hearts prone to wonder. But would you be at work in us? As your blessing is poured down from Easter Sunday into people like us, would you be transforming us more into your likeness? And might we be those who worship the Lord Jesus as we ought? In his precious name we pray. Amen.